Good morning. Uh, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to be uh, reading our scripture this morning uh, before Larry comes up here. Again, that's 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to be reading verses 3 and 4, and it's on page 276. It's also uh, on the front of your bulletin if you want to uh, go with that. I think I know pretty much everybody here. My name's Rob Miles. My wife Jane and I uh, have been members for a number of years, and uh, we're blessed with uh, two daughters, Aubrey and Talia. All right. Second Samuel chapter 23, again, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Uh, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who perfectly exercises his authority. Lord, you have the right to use that authority to, to damn us, but instead you've saved us. You've used your power and your authority to be gracious to us. And apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing good. We are in your debt. We are thankful for your mercy. And we pray now, Lord, that you would bless us this morning as Larry comes up. Give him uh, the words to say that honor you and that bring clarity to us on this topic of authority. And may you, above all, be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you. We missed you last week. It's good to be here. Good to be with you, singing with you, praying together. Uh, we love you. Uh, we love worshiping with you. There's no better place to be on Sunday morning. I hope you feel it this way than to be right here, worshiping the Lord together. Uh, kids, I'm going to start with you right from the start. I would like to teach you a new word. I think it's probably going to be a new word for you, kids. Uh, it's a little bit of a funny-sounding word. It's the word oxymoron. Have you ever heard that word before, kids? Oxymoron. It's a, it's a word... The word oxymoron means when you put two words or ideas together that don't really seem to fit or make sense together. So think of clean dirt. That doesn't really fit together, right? Clean dirt. Or cold fire. They just don't fit. It's an oxymoron. Well, this, this sermon that I'm going to preach this morning is about two words that a lot of people think are an oxymoron. The words are good and authority. Good authority. A lot of people, even a lot of Christians, have come to believe that those two words, they just don't fit together. They've come to believe that all authority, but just by virtue of one person having power over another person, is in its very nature corrupt and abusive. Certain situations maybe even come to mind when you think about authority that are tragically all too common. You can think of abused authority, perhaps a husband abusing the authority he's been given over a wife, or parents abusing authority over children, or politicians abusing authority to serve their own selfish ends, uh, police abusing their authority, pastors, sadly, even in the name of Christ, abusing their authority or covering up abuse that has been perpetrated by others. Uh, sad 
stories abound. I'm sure that if we were to sit amongst one another later today and talk about the sad stories of ways that we have experienced authority abused, it, it, we would, it would take many, many hours, if not days, to share those heartbreaking stories. Uh, our society is increasingly learning to categorize everyone as either an abuser or a non-abuser, an oppressor or a non-oppressor. That's just the way people are increasingly viewing the whole world. White people, oppressors. Black people, oppressed. Sexually straight people, oppressors. Sexually open and exploring the oppressed. We see this angst, this anger towards authority being fed in the entertainment industry. I was just thinking about this subject of authority and how many uh, movies, when I was a kid, and I think it continues on today, uh, the heroes in those movies are individuals who stand up to authority because the authority figures are evil. I wonder if you can think of any of those stories that have shaped you. Luke Skywalker, rising up against the evil empire. Our kids are catechized in this, this way as well. They are taught to sing with Queen Elsa. The movie is frozen. It's a bit dated. I'm sure there are more contemporary applications of this principle, but I remember this one. No right, no wrong. No rules for me. I'm free. Ours is the age of individualism, which does not mean that I like being alone or I don't have any friends, but it means that nobody can tell me what to do or who to be. Kids, individualism, it's another fancy word I'm teaching you this morning, it's the idea that you're not the boss of me and nobody can be the boss of me, but I'm going to be my own boss. We've become very confused, very corrupted in our thinking about authority. And in such a world as this one, where authority is so often abused or confused, corrupted, we are going to take a short break from our regular study of books of the Bible, and we're going to be spending the next Five Sundays, Lord willing, considering from Scripture this theme, this reality of authority and its goodness in a variety of spheres, authority in the home and authority in the government, authority in the church. And my, my hope uh, and desire for this series is that it would help us all to cherish and to properly exercise and submit to good authority. It would be helpful for you, especially this morning, to just consider right now, where is it that you are in authority? And where is it that you are under authority? Kids, you might not think that you're really in authority over anyone, but if, you're, if your mom or dad tells you, go tell your brother or sister to come downstairs, it's time for dinner. Immediately, right there, you have some authority that is given to you. Be good for you to think, where is it that I am in authority over others? Where am I under authority? And we want to think rightly about that and biblically about that, because yes, there is such a thing as good authority. And I think one of the most spectacular statements that's ever been made about good authority is found in those words from 2 Samuel chapter 23 that Rob just read to us. Uh, there's a simple idea that I want to set before you from those two verses, though I do want to look at a, a little bit of the surrounding context in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 23 to just help us think about those two verses in a little bit more depth. But the main idea there in verses 3 and 4, I think it's very plain, it's very obvious, it's really foundational to the messages that are coming in this series. And the main idea is this. 
good authority is a great blessing. It's one of the most simple main ideas I think I've ever given you. Good authority is a great blessing. That's the main idea I want you to take away from this sermon, maybe even from the next five weeks. What's it all about? What's the point? Good authority is a great blessing. To help us think about that main idea, let's observe from not just verses 3 and 4, but from the text surrounding it, verses 1 to 7. Let's think about the importance of good authority, the character of good authority, the benefits of good authority, and the hope of good authority. Importance of good authority, we're going to see that in verses 1 to 3a, the beginning of verse 3. The character of good authority is there in the second half of verse 3. The benefits of good authority we see in verse 4. And the hope of good authority in verses, verse 5 especially, verses 5 to 7. So, what's the main idea? Can we all say it aloud together? The main idea of this passage? Good authority is a great blessing. You are really sharp this morning. To set, to the setup, though, to that main idea that is found in verses 3 and 4, the setup in verses 1 to 3 pack so much weight to get our attention and eagerly anticipate that main idea that I couldn't help but just briefly draw your attention to the importance of this subject, the importance of good authority, how at pains David seems to be to get us to pay attention to this word about the goodness of authority. Look at the text there. Look at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Well, that seems important. Last words. Now, they're not literally, if you read your Bible, beyond 2 Samuel 23, 7 and into the rest of chapter 24 and even the beginning of 1 Kings. Uh, David does speak again. These are not literally his last words. It seems that the idea is these are his, this is like his last will and testament, his last public words on the record, a closing statement on the life of of David, those things maybe that were particularly important to him, or at least that that he himself seemed to think were important. They're his last words. David was Israel's great king, which you see there. This is the oracle of David, who was the son of Jesse. And so we're reminded there of his humble, lowly origin. Jesse was from that tiny, insignificant town of Bethlehem, a complete afterthought, even in his own household. If you remember when Samuel came and was looking for God's next king, right? And Jesse was like, they, he brought all the sons out. He's like, is there, are there any others? Oh, well, there's that one more, but he, you couldn't possibly be looking for him. He's a shepherd out with the sheep. No, that's the one. He was of lowly, humble origins. He says of the house of Jesse, but one who was the chosen and anointed one of God, raised on high. Look at what it says there in, in verse uh, one. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of a man raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we see there that it's an, it's an oracle. And that word oracle refers to the fact that this is a divine message. These words are not just David's musings as he sort of came to the end of his life and just was thinking about some, stu- some stuff. He's passing on, he tells us, he's passing on what God has declared. And it's really clear in verse two, right? The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel, he has said to me. You get the idea, don't you? This is a kind of a big deal. Whatever David's about to say, it's pretty important. The importance of good authority. That's what the word is coming up. It's a word about the great blessing of good authority. So here we have this issue of authority. Neglected, misunderstood, despised as it is around us. Many people cynical about it, 
David comes to the end of his life, and in his last words, he says, I've got something to say. God, who's raised me up, God is speaking. Four times, God, the Spirit of God, it's an oracle. God is saying, there's great authority. Good authority is a great blessing. That's the importance of good authority. What then is this good authority? What is its character? Well, the text gives us two features Though I really would say I think they're, they're two sides of the same coin. So long setup. He packs great weight. Here's the words. Here's my last words. The words of the one raised on high. God is saying it. God is saying this. God's told me to say this. Okay, David, what is it that you want me to hear? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. So we just can see right there that the Bible does not share the sentiment that all authority, simply by virtue of one person having power over another person, is in its very nature corrupt and abusive. The Bible does not share that sentiment. Here we see David speaking of one ruling over men. This, this reality of hierarchy of one person ruling over another. It's woven into the very fabric of the universe. God has hardwired such relationships of power and dependence into the very way that we're born and reared. Have you ever thought about that? I'm not sure that I'd ever thought about it till this week. What baby could survive his or her first day outside of the womb without someone taking charge over them? making decisions, determining what's good and bad for that child. Relationships of authority are woven into the way that we're made. And so there is this reality of good authority. And David says good authority is that in which ruling over others is done justly. Or it might say in your translation of the Bible, righteously. To rule justly is to rule in righteousness. Authority that is good authority is authority that is used consistently with God's will. It is God alone who is the righteous one. David knew this to be true. He said in Psalm 62 verse 11, power belongs to God. And so Israel's kings, along with all those who possess authority, whether you possess authority as a government official or as a father or a mother or as an executive in the workplace or as a pastor in a church, all authority is supposed to be exercised for God in obedience to God and to his revealed will in the Bible, submitting to the Ten Commandments seeking to be fair and good and upholding truth and love, seeking to act as God's representatives, treating other people the way we ourselves would hope to be treated, promoting the highest good of another. That is a reflection of God's own character and righteousness, and that is how he intends authority to be used. And this rule over others is rooted in the one who rules, recognizing that he himself is one or she herself is one who is under authority, that is the authority of God. The one who rules justly over men is one who rules in the fear of God. The one in authority is reminded whose the authority really is, whose steward he or she is, whose people these really are, and to whom he will give an account. This is a big takeaway that I'd like for you to have for this whole, not just this sermon, but actually the whole series. Only when a person is under God's authority are they truly fit to be in authority over other people. Only when we're under God's authority are we truly fit to be in authority over other people. The accountability that we have 
to the one who is above us should stop us from abusing that authority to the ones who are below us. And that just makes sense in in life. Uh, uh, If you've ever taken a book out of the library, you understand you you take a little extra care with the book because the book's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. Uh, One time, when I was at at Penn State, I was, uh, as a lot of you know, I was the manager of the Penn State basketball team, and one year, uh, I think it was my junior year, uh, the head head basketball coach, I don't know how, I remember how this came up, but he he flipped, he, he threw me his car keys. He had a brand new Toyota 4Runner, which I think was kind of a big deal in the year 1997. Maybe this is like a Toyota 4Runner. It was a br- nice brand new car. He handed me the, he, he threw me the keys. He said, I need you to go downtown. I need you to run an errand. Here's my car. Go down and do this, this thing. That's, that was his exercising authority. I drove very carefully. Driving to downtown State College is not like driving in downtown Philadelphia or downtown Manhattan. But I was very careful making that drive. And it was not just because I thought the car had value, it was was who the car belonged to. Remembering that we do not own those that we're in authority over helps us to treat those people carefully as God's possession, which is what they all are. And so one reason I think we can say, maybe it is even the greatest reason for the breakdown in rightly regarding authority, wherever it is that we see the right regard for authority breaking down, I think we could say at root the reason it has broken down is because of the loss of God uh, being presented and recognized as one who himself is to be feared. It is no surprise that justice and righteousness breaks down where God is regarded lightly. Because justice is founded in the fear of God, in an accurate estimate of and reverence for and regard for him and his will. If we think lightly of God, we will think little of the account we will give to him, and it's almost certain that we will then forget the seriousness of our charge to exercise authority as his image bearers, and we'll use those who are in authority over us as if they were ours for our benefit, for our gain, instead of seeing it as a stewardship from God. I say it's almost certain because you probably have known some person in authority who maybe was not a Christian, but did seem to exercise their authority kindly and generously and lovingly, and that is because of God's, what, we, what theologians call God's common grace. As image bearers of God, even sinful people who rage against him sometimes do because they're his image bearers, act in ways that faithfully represent him. God restrains evil in those ways. But it's almost certain that if we forget the weightiness of God, we will abuse and misuse the authority that God has given us. And so the most vital thing that we can do to cultivate a right posture towards authority, both in our exercise of authority and in our submission to authority, the most vital thing we can do to have the right posture and right attitude about authority is to grow in the fear of God. to grow in esteeming him as great and weighty and glorious as he really is, to to sing all hail the power of Jesus' name, the one before whom angels prostrate fall, To, to concern ourselves with his holiness and his wrath, to to fill our hearts with the thought of standing before him on that final day of glorious and awful judgment in which God's people will be vindicated and God's enemies condemned, To, to cultivate confidence in his sovereign rule over all things, even the lot that is cast into the lap, to recognize that God is the one who holds the universe together by the word of his power, that from him and through him and to him are all things 
that the nations are just a drop in the bucket before him, mere dust on the scales, that the earth is his footstool to cultivate the fear of God to the degree that we are growing in the fear, not just being able to talk eloquently about the fear of God, let the preacher be on notice, not just talking about a great God, but truly humbling yourself before such a great and awesome and mighty God as the true God is. It's as we grow in that that we are in a place to exercise authority appropriately, to be ones who do not tear others down, who do not use and abuse people for their own gain, but who by God's grace, who fear him appropriately and thus are a source of light and refreshment and fruitfulness for other people that they are in authority over. Which brings us to point number three, the benefits of good authority. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Is verse four just not a beautiful, beautiful picture? He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That, there it is, that's the sum of the matter. Do You see the main idea that I said was, it's in the passage, it's not my idea. You don't look for the man to come up here no matter how loud he is or how quiet he is. You look for someone when you're sitting there listening to the word being preached. You say, is he saying what the Bible says? Do you see there in verses three and four? Good authority is a great blessing. Warm rains falling down on land and sunbeams shining down to stimulate life so that the the result is a, a bountiful harvest. That's what good authority is like. Good authority blesses those under it. It gives light. You think of of a, a, a long patch of days, dreary and gloomy and overcast. You haven't seen the sun in like a week. You know what that's like then when that, that morning when the the overcast skies break and you wake up early in the morning and that, that sun is shining again. Oh, how we missed the sun. Good authorities like that. It gives life. It enriches. It makes fruitful. It draws out the potential in another. And we all... Know that. We, we've, I, I trust you have, while you have maybe bad experiences, which we could lament, that you've known wonderful examples of this. It's why every kid wants to go to the home with good parents. Why every student wants to be in the class with a good teacher or wants to play on a team with a good coach. Or everyone wants to work at a company with a good boss because good authority is a great blessing. And even in this fallen world that we live in, we graciously get tastes of it. Good authority that strengthens communities, that protects the vulnerable, that promotes human flourishing and makes those people fruitful. Those who exercise authority rightly, justly, in the fear of God, they cultivate an environment where people under their care can fulfill their potential as image bearers of God. That's the second big takeaway that I hope you get from this whole series. The first big takeaway was only those who are rightly under authority can actually exercise authority over others. A second big takeaway would be that good authority enriches others by helping them to be the person that God has made them to be. There's a whole lot more that we could say about good authority, and we'll be saying more about it in the weeks to come. But it's not quite time to close in prayer just yet, because we know that if we look around in our Bibles, and if we look around at our world, 
there is certainly great reason to be cynical and pessimistic or suspicious about authority. We can say that authority is a good gift. I think we also know that authority is a dangerous gift. We have seen authority grossly perverted and corrupted. Adam and Eve corrupted the authority that they'd been given by God in the Garden of Eden when they believed the serpent's devious accusation that God, their Lord and ruler, could not actually love them while at the same time telling them no about something. God had given them a whole world full of yes, of life, of fruitfulness, of glory and goodness, and he made one prohibition, and the serpent took that one prohibition and said, said, God God really could, could withhold from you and be good and be trustworthy? And our first parents, they believed the serpent's devious lie about God, and they rebelled against him. The first humans rebelled against good authority. And ever since then, human beings have resisted and ignored and rejected God's authority in order to be a law unto themselves. And the results have been disastrous. And all you have to do is look around maybe at your own life or turn on whatever is your news outlet to see the chaos. Rather than the rising of civilizations, we see chaos wallowing in oppression rather than finding justice. We look around at the world and we can see what the writer of Ecclesiastes saw when he said, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. So what do we do with this wonderful statement about authority while looking around at the world we in, which is so far from that ideal? Well, in David's last words here, he is describing an ideal kingship, a kingship that rules with justice, that with righteousness, with impartiality, carried out in the fear of God. But even David himself didn't live up to that ideal which he promoted in his famous last words. Uh, We see a, a description of David's rule Earlier in 2 Samuel, in chapter 8, verse 15, we're told, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Well, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? Except if you keep reading a couple chapters, when that King David, Mr. Just and Righteous in the Fear of God, saw a woman on a rooftop and used his authority to say, get me that woman. Even though that woman he knew was a married woman. And then he used his authority to have that man who was a soldier, his own soldier in battle, to have him killed so that he could cover up his adultery. And that abuse of David's authority was evil in God's sight. And God judged that evil. And the latter years of David's rule, if you read through the chapters earlier, especially chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, I actually went back and about five years ago, I don't know if any of you remember this, it'd be wonderful if any of you remember this, that we actually did a series of sermons through First and Second Samuel. And I looked at the title for the the passage before this one uh, that I had put on the title for chapters 13 to 20 was The King's Calamity. And the King's Calamity was all because of his own sin. The last years of David's rule knew great strife and heartache. And that's why these last words of David conclude not with a statement about man's potential, but with a statement of the promise of God. Look at, look at verse 5 again. This is what I said was the hope of good authority. For does not my house stand so with God, David said? 
The answer of that rhetorical question is yes. David's house stands with God. Despite his sin, despite his evil, despite his abuse of authority, his house stands with God. Four, verse five continues, he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Again, rhetorical question, the answer is yes. God will prosper David. God will be faithful to his covenant ordered in all things and secure. The hope of good authority is not pinned on any ethical, moral ideal, but on the covenant promise of God, a covenant that God had made with David recorded back in chapter seven of 2 Samuel, where God said that he would establish David's throne and his offspring forever, and he would build David's throne for all generations forever. And things started out pretty well for David's son, Solomon, but we get the take on how Solomon exercised his authority from those who counseled Solomon's son, Rehoboam, after Solomon died. In 1 Kings chapter 12, okay, so David had Solomon, Solomon ruled, now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes along, he's the next king, and they sent for Rehoboam and they said, your father, who's Rehoboam's father, Okay, you're with me, good, praise God. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Solomon ruled with an iron fist as we would say today. He ruled harshly, that the yoke has to do with subjection to authority. He made our yoke heavy, lighten our yoke, Rehoboam, and we'll serve you. And that sounded like good counsel. Rehoboam, this is a favorite story of ours, right? Rehoboam, now he weighs this counsel, lighten the, lo- lighten the yoke, and he, he finds some of his elders, and they say, that's good counsel, you should do that. And he doesn't like that. He wants to find counsel that suits his own desire, so he finds some of his peers, and they say, no, no, you need to double down. And that's what Rehoboam wanted to do. He said, he, got, he gathered this people around and told him to ease the yoke. And he said, my father made your yoke heavy. I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And in a generation, the kingdom divided. And all we see of, his, of David's kingdom is just a big hot mess then for centuries. What then of this promise of good authority, of an everlasting covenant with David's house, ordered and secure? Well, praise God that the faithlessness of man can never thwart or defeat or nullify the faithfulness of God and his purposes for his people. I mean, that's just a big takeaway, beloved, not just from this passage, but from the entire Bible. Read it as many of you are, I trust, in these days in January, you're reading the book of Genesis in your Bible reading maybe. And that's just like to read the book of Genesis, it is like, what these people, like what is going on with the, now again, we got, we got to put the mirror on ourselves then, right? It's like, I was just reading a story the other day. I, uh, is it, as Leah says to, to Jacob, I hired you with my son's mandrakes. You're coming to me tonight. Say what? Like, what? The whole point is the, faith, the faithlessness of people cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. And so David's line, though he himself abused authority, though Solomon abused authority, though Rehoboam abused authority, the kingdom divided, the kingdom collapsed, but God had made a promise that one would come who would be the fulfillment and the embodiment of all that David had spoken of in those glorious last words of his. Isaiah spoke of this one who would come in words very reminiscent of David's last words. You know these words, we've just celebrated Christmas. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone, like the sun shining, a bright cloudless morning at dawn. To us, 
a child is born. To us, a son is given. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Two chapters later, Isaiah 11, his delight, this son who would be born and given to the people, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Oh, in a world so full of unfairness, so full of lies and deception, rulers out for themselves and their own glory and their advancement of their own name, God held forth, there's one who's going to come, who's going to be the perfect embodiment of all good authority, and that one who came was the Lord Jesus. 2 Samuel 23 is not a more, it's not mainly a moral ideal for us to strive after. It's a full length portrait of Jesus Christ. Didn't we even see a little picture of that in the passage that Chloe read to us from John 13 on the night before his death? When he, the most high God, the upholder of the universe, the one for whom all things exist, made himself the lowly servant of his disciples, washing their feet. Jesus' love, Jesus is the one who had all authority. He would say it even after he rose from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me the one who rules and reigns over all, who spoke the universe into existence. His love moved him lower and lower, emptying himself of his dignity, taking the form of a servant. The king came to serve, not just washing the feet of his disciples, but suffering the shameful death of a cross to wash their sins away. Oh, that's what he would say in Mark chapter 10, the son of man, the ruler, the one who has all dominion and authority in the kingdom, the son of man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is our hope because the problem of bad authority is not just an out there problem. This would be another important takeaway. I just keep coming up with big takeaways. (laughs) The problem of bad, misused authority, it's not just an out there problem. It's an in here problem. It's an all of us problem. Because we've all believed the lie of the serpent. That it would be better if we just did things our way rather than God's. We've all sought to put ourselves in the place of God. Not listening to the voices of others not heeding counsel, easily offended and threatened when corrected, striving to maintain control of our lives, whether by fighting or lying or manipulating, trusting our own instincts about what is right and wrong, justifying our every emotion and defending our every decision, demanding that other people honor us, being thin-skinned and self-pitying when we don't get our way or when our wills get crossed, coveting what others have and presuming to deserve glory from them. It's an all-of-us problem. How wickedly twisted we've all become in sin. No, the Word of God says, you are not self-created. You are not self-sufficient. You are not self-ruling. You are not Lord of your own life, nor the purpose and goal of all things. But you live like that sometimes, and so do I. And yet for people like us, the Son of God came 
Lord of lords, King of kings, blessed and only sovereign. He came and he perfectly lived under and exercised authority. He perfectly submitted to his father's authority and he showed the perfect exercise of authority, serving people who didn't deserve it by sacrificing himself. The one who had made all suffered himself to be despised and rejected by all. The source of life was willing to come and suffer death to bring his people rest and to restore his people to his kind and light yoke. That's the part of Matthew 11 that does not get the same airplay. We, I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful statement it is that Jeff read after the prayer of confession. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, he came to give us rest from our labors to try to live in a way that would be okay for him, that would be acceptable to him. He came and he lived and he died that we might rest from those exhausting labors and rest in his all-sufficient grace. And then he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says, come to me and rest in me and learn from me. I've got a yoke. What does yoke have to do with? Yoke has to do with authority. Yoke has to do with a harness. It's a wooden frame. You ever seen a yoke? I've never seen a yoke. I had to Google it, but you know, you can Google it later. It's a harness for animals that, that joins two animals together to pull a, a heavy load. And it was symbolic throughout the scriptures of one subjection to another. And it's often used, almost always used in a negative way like was used about Solomon and that heavy yoke he had put on the people. But Jesus says, I've got a yoke, but it's a different kind of yoke. It's a, gen it's a kind yoke. It's a gracious yoke. What could be wrong with the yoke of one who came from heaven to earth and laid down his life to rescue you from your sins? My yoke is easy, he would say. My burden is light. But he comes and he puts us under his authority. And oh, why would we not want to be under his authority? Jesus has shown us good authority. I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it regarding the yoke of Jesus. His yoke is no more a burden than the feathers are to a bird. His commandments are not grievous. His ways are ways of pleasantness, and all his paths are peace. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Come, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the call of God is to come to him and find rest in him. And when you come to him and find rest in him, you find the most wonderful yoke. Not hard, not crushing, not like Pharaoh cracking a whip, making impossible labor for the people. They didn't have enough straw. Make more bricks. I, oh, I'll give you less straw, make more bricks. His yoke is not like that. This is the yoke of one who gave his life for you. All his ways are ways of pleasantness. If you've not come to Jesus to rest in him and take his gracious and light and pleasant yoke upon you, receive Jesus today. Turn from your own self-rule. Turn from your vain efforts to make yourself acceptable to him on your own and rest in his finished sacrifice and he will give you the kindest yoke. A gracious yoke teaching you by his good authority to live in a way that shows his good authority, walking in a manner that is worthy of him, bearing fruit in every good work. That's what we were made for, and that's what Jesus, in his good authority, rescues us for. There's more I could say. There's more I was going to say, but I should wrap it up. Kids, Kids, bringing it back. Is good authority, this, like, this would be great if you, if you got this. Is good authority an oxymoron? Praise God for the nose in the house. Good authority is not an oxymoron. Good authority are two words that put together beautifully depict our Lord Jesus. He's the Lord. And he's a gracious Lord. That song that we introduced today is a, 
is like the perfect song for this whole series. His name is true king, Lord of creation, ruler without end. That is, he's an authority. He reigns all hail Jesus. And oh, what joy it is to be able to say that we can call him hope and peace and wonderful savior. Oh, what joy that Jesus, the all authoritative one, calls us friends. Beloved, there's more to talk about, about how to use authority and how to submit to authority in ways that honor the Lord. But today, simply rejoice that the one who rules and who reigns over all is pleased to call us his beloved at the cost of his own life and marvel at this glorious privilege of being able to show off the worthiness of our God and Savior through our submission to and our right use of the authority that he has entrusted to us. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus. We thank you that in a world that is so full of bad and harsh and cruel and misused authority, that there is one seated right now on a throne. And that your authority is always forever good loving, generous. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit to help us grow in yielding more and more towards your good rule and reign over our lives, and that we would conduct our lives in this world in such a way that would help other people to see the good authority of our gracious Lord Jesus. How we live, how we speak, how we work, May you be honored in our lives. You are worthy among every people and tribe and every nation and tongue. You have made us a kingdom and priests to our God. You are worthy. May we declare it to be so today and may we walk in the light of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.